I'd like to begin the evening uh, by sincerely acknowledging the Boonwurrung, um, the traditional owners and sovereign custodians of the land we're gathered on tonight. Um, and I'd also like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri and all people of all Kulin nations and pay our respects to their elders past, present and future and any Indigenous First Nations people that are with us this evening. Um, it's my pleasure to introduce Jan van Skyk. Jan is the producer of um, Writing and Concepts and he's the director of MVS Architects and also a lecturer and researcher at RMIT University. Um, so please join me in welcoming Jan. Thanks very much, everybody. Um, I'd like to add a lib on the acknowledgement to country um, at the start of these lectures by adding that the land that we're standing on was taken from its traditional owners in an act of violence um, paralleled with an act of genocide and that this act of genocide is not widely acknowledged uh, at levels of federal government nor widely taught in high schools. And I urge you to write to members of parliament and have them address that. If you've written to them already, please convince someone else to do it. Um, thank, you, thank you very much, um, Laura. Um, welcome to Writing and Concepts, um, a lecture series in which I invite artists and uh, writing practitioners um, who work generally in the domain of the visual arts to reflect on the role that writing plays in the development of the concepts in their practice. Um, tonight's a very special evening because, as I was discussing before, and I might elaborate on a little bit later, um, it is, in fact, the fault of Open Spatial Workshop that this lecture series exists at all. More later. But before we get to that part of the evening, I would like to introduce Open Spatial Workshop, which is a collaborative art group comprising Terry Bird, Bianca Hester, and Scott Mitchell. Over the past 13 years, OSW has produced a broad range of work spanning sculpture, installation, curated events, publications, and video production. Their activities are framed by an ongoing interest in physical forces and how the temporalities of these forces are registered. Converging in time, MUMA 2017 explored connections between materiality, the shaping of territories, and the various politics inscribed in place. This was framed through their research into the, the Natural Sciences Collection at Museum Victoria, employing specific specimens to explore entanglements between geology, geography, colonization, resource extraction, and philosophical thought. You probably all read that already because it was on, written on the, uh, <laughs> the text advertising event. But having announced that, please uh, join me in welcoming OSW to our stage. We'd also like to add our acknowledgements to country and um, one of the things that we hope to get to discuss a little bit today is the difficulty as practitioners of actually grappling with that history. It's one of the things that we particularly found um, a confrontation with the converging of time exhibition. Okay, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Um, so, our title is Work, and we're going to try to unpack that through these concepts of working, works, and work. Um, the presentation has three directions, stemming from the idea of working, 
and they're orientated on three reflections, how we work together as a collaborative group, the artwork that we produce, and um, the work that our practice enables. Um, this will allow us uh, to talk through the way we work with different sites, how we work together and with others, and what we're aiming to do or to think about through the engagement with the Geoscience Collection at Museums Victoria, particularly with regards to the recent exhibition. The exhibition continued our focus, as um, Jan has described, on the material force relations of a sculptural practice and its spatial and temporal dynamics. We've been specifically interested in exploring how um, it might be possible to work in a manner that moves away from the assumption that as artists we impose or impart information, content or meaning um, into inert matter, preferring instead to assemble fields of relations in which encounters produce effects. So from the outset, uh, and when we got together as a collaborative group in 2003, was through the Project Club's Project Inc. that was situated above the Builders Arms Hotel in Fitzroy. We were interested in exploring physical forces, how they're registered and the spatial dynamics they activate. We've developed a process of workshopping ideas and materials that utilises experimentation to ensure that we remain open to tangents and contingencies that can't be predicted or determined in advance. It's a way of working that is endlessly open to the dynamics of production in the forming of the work. Our interest in material force relations led us to approach Museums Victoria back in 2011 to ask if we could make a mould of a meteorite. In the process of moulding the Henbury Iron Meteorite, we came to understand how its surface registered the events of its formation, its splitting from a larger iron mass, the intensity of collisions with other asteroids, and the vortices of hot gases causing the ablation of its surface as it fell through the Earth's atmosphere. That's an image of us casting that amazing object, 33 kilograms of solid iron nickel. The meteorite also highlighted the temporal dimensions of matter as a duration that exceeds easy comprehension and a conceptualization of spatiality beyond anthropomorphic preoccupations. This experience opened up the potential of thinking through the geological record and of bringing the geological specimens into relation with various social, economic and political formations. Uh, the generosity of the mu museum staff, the wealth of specimens in the archive and the histories and narratives attached to these uh, has drawn us back to the museum on numerous occasions. In order to unpack the multiple relations that emerged from this engagement, we've structured this presentation in three parts, each of which considers the mobilisation of different kinds of work. Firstly, there is the work we do together and separately that engages with a range of sites in various ways collected in various ways that collect and archive information. These archives, including geological records in rocks held in museum collections uh, at Crystal World and in situ, um, the collections of documents, photos and memorabilia in local museums and libraries, like the Brown Coal Museum in Yalorn North, or the local history collection at the Brunswick Library, and the narratives held by people who have been involved in the various collections. 
Secondly, there are numerous texts, texts from a range of fields, geology, cultural, geography, philosophy, etc., that we have drawn on to develop understandings of what we are working with and how we are working. In this instance, we're going to focus on a few terms from Gilbert Simondon that have allowed us to conceptualise work in terms of thinking about forms, about forming and processes of individuation. Um, Simondon is mostly known as a um, philosopher of technology and science. Um, while the technical object comes from an abstract reasoning, Simondon argues that the modes of existence of objects and individuals are entwined in relationships with a milieu or environment that individuation both emerges from and transforms. Simondon had a significant influence on Gilles Deleuze, who utilised Simondon's articulation of individuation to develop an understanding of the relationship of matter and form as modulation. This enables Deleuze, as Anne Savignaga notes, to speak of art as a physics of effects. And it is um, largely from Anne's writing that we're drawing our understanding of Simondon because not a lot of his work's been translated into English. And she's a fantastic commentator on both Deleuze, Simondon and Guattari. And I couldn't recommend highly enough her books on um, Deleuze and art and art machine. Um, she's my new favourite. <laughs> um, uh, we will discuss Simondon's understanding of modulation, a dynamic movement of forces and materials, in the context of his examination of disparation, the, dis the difference that exists in a pre-individual environment, both of which inform his understanding of individuation as a process of emergence or becoming. Through these terms, Simondon replaces form and formation with a concept of continual modulation, allowing him to think of individuation as a process of becoming rather than an operation that imposes form on matter. Thirdly, we'll look at some examples from our practice as an ongoing workshop or process of workshopping that we do together a lot and also more recently with others in order to elaborate what we think the various mobilisations of the practice and what that enables. In this sense, we're not just interested in discussing the artwork, rather we, we're concerned to articulate or understand how the multiple forces, the forces condensed in the geological specimens, those entangled in the social and material histories, the texts that inform our thinking, the event of exhibition, which in the case of the Mama show, Converging in Time included a research and a gallery exhibition and a publication kind of handbook that supplemented the project, uh, and an associated bus tour with a range of participants, and OSW as a group, and how this comes into relationship. Okay, um, firstly we'll talk about the archive. So here we're thinking about the archive quite broadly as a collection or capturing of fragments, material and otherwise. This notion of archive extends from the geological record, example, sedimentary rock formations, to museum collections, libraries, and even the memories that form our own personal and social histories. We apply similar relationships or regimes to each of these, to a rock, to a collection, to a person. These archives should not be thought of as static, rather they are a mechanism through which events of the past meet the present. 
Past events are not confined to the archive, but rather remain generative as they meet new presence. While the archive holds traces of the geological and social forces that shape it, the initial categorization or organization, it, is also, it also has the capacity to live in the absence of these original intentions and forces. Working with these archives has allowed us to explore a potential other than what is already inscribed within them. Mobilising fragments to a, of the archive, we seek to unleash a feverish and generative power. Uh, in 19, um, sorry, <laughs> 2013, we undertook a residency within the Geoscience Department of Museums Victoria, engaging with uh, the museum staff, including Dermot Henry, the late Dave Pickering, Bill Birch, Eric Fitzgerald and Rolf Smith. Through this residency, uh, we were introduced to a range of geological specimens from the museum collection, along with the geological information, both evident in the specimen themselves and documented in the museum records. Large and small narratives of spatial and social information. Narratives ranging in scale and type from the geological processes that formed the east coast of Australia to the emergence of the labour movement in Brunswick. Often these narratives were revealed to us through the prolonged conversation with the scientists at the museum. So we developed the, uh, we had many conversations with many different kinds of scientists in that collection and uh, the way we recorded those conversations was through this kind of intensive diagramming process and we, we saw that as being co-produced with the museum staff. And so we were, we were starting to understand, you know, this is the workshopping, this is, this is why we're called Open Spatial Workshop. So conversations generally focused around a specific specimen and, an ex and then it expanded out from this point as scientific and social understandings were discussed and captured and documented. We followed threads from this initial work at Museums Victoria out into different fields or sites to sites of geological significance and social significance and those two things are absolutely intertwined, themselves archives of fragments. We went to the Cape Lip Trap Formation on the Gippsland Coast where the exposed rock face reveals sedimentary deposits from 400 million years ago. And we also travelled to Yolorn to see, to witness the coal, open cut coal mines uh, and learn as we visited that site of the story of your lawn, which none of us knew until we went. <laughs> In fact, we asked the museum staff at the, at the Morwell Gallery, oh, we really want to go to your lawn. They're like, you mean your lawn north? And we're like, oh yeah, your lawn north. And as we were driving, we're like, well, what happened to your lawn? And then when we got to this small local history museum and we saw the paraphernalia and souvenirs and mappings, we realised that your lawn had been pulverised in the uh, 90s, uh, it was built as a model town in the 1920s with Sir John Monash heading up the SECV uh, and then it was uh, shortly learnt that the township was sitting on a seam of, of coal. So it was then planned for demolition and it, uh, people lost their homes in the 90s and the entire township now exists in this gaping hole and this is a very humble sign that uh, signifies what's happened. So we were quite moved by that as a story, 
a kind of a story of the Australian continent, continent that is repeated, has been repeated for decades since the time of colonisation. And so, and this is an image of that really humble museum who commissioned that sign to acknowledge the, um, the destruction of the town. And then also to other places such as Crystal World, which is the source of many of the museum specimens, uh, and a geological collection in its own right, although quite distinct from the museums. Um, so as we went uh, to these various sites, we and, and uh, conducted our research, uh, we constructed our own additional archive, an array of photographs and texts were organised within Evernote and Google Drive. The OSW archive collects together the various sources in ways that allows a rock to sit next to a conversation or a social movement, bringing these various fragments into relation. Each element has the potential to activate the context or situation within which it is mobilised. One way of understanding this process is through the idea of individuation developed by Simondon. Um, as a tinkerer, Simondon was engaged in hands-on experimentation, repairing and constructing his own laboratory. Pascal Chabot recounts that he devoted himself to experiments in physics, acoustics and mechanics and constructed one of the first television receivers in France. Um, a familiarity with tinking, tinkering through making is evident in Simondon's careful articulation of the process of brickmaking which lends a particular re relevance to discussing forming in the visual arts. Simondon develops an understanding of individuation as an individuating operation, which he opposes to, which he approaches as a problem-solving strategy. For example, he regards perception as a solution to the problem posed by the flood of sensations of unknown origin. It's not surprising that Simondon would have an interest in perception given that one of his doctoral supervisors was um, Maurice Moloponti. One of Simondon's most evocative concepts is developed through his, his examination of perception, that is, disparation. Simondon borrows the term disparation from the psychophysiology of perception, where it refers to depth perception in binocular vision, described as the incompatibility of retinal images. Um, and you can get a sense of this if you close one eye and then close the other eye and there's a difference between those two images and binocular vision is a creation of a new dimension that assimilates those into one image. The left and the right eye produce asymmetrical retinal images and these two images do not coincide due to the difference, differences in parallaxes. Depth perception or binocular vision is a creative response to the contradiction between these different retinal images, resolving the conflict by positively creating a new dimension, a tridimensionality that each isolated left and right retinal image does not contain. Importantly, the emergence of a tridimensionality, tridimensional image is not a reduction of the retinal disparity, but an amplification or a productive operation whereby a new dimension or difference emerges. <laughs> this is a process of 
So this is the process of disparation that Simondon extends from the problematic incompatibility within the visual field to the level of a general logic of what you would be familiar with the Deleuzean term becoming. Disparation, which allows us to understand the construction of perceptual operation, serves as a model for all processes of individuation, no matter what scale, and provides a model for the creation of the new. So the, the concept of disparation has been really, we've, we've been grappling with this over the last month, but it really speaks to us and resonates with how we understand what we do and how we work, especially as a collaborative of three, and the kinds of tensions and conflicts and asymmetries that emerge in that process, because they're inevitable. So the tension between two disparate dimensions is retained in the formation of a new dimension that requires them, am I in the right spot? Yes, that requires them in order to produce a new system. The heterogeneity of this integration is an important aspect of our own working processes in terms of how we work as a collective. One enduring principle we've mostly managed to practice for the last 13 years is that we keep working, experimenting, etc., until we come up with a solution that we are all happy with. It's rarely the case that we opt to resolve the disparity in our views through a process that synthesizes the difference and tension or subsumes the contradictions that seem to emerge in every <laughs> single decision-making process. An example, for example, <laughs> an example of this is the time it took us to resolve the bloody title for our Converging <laughs> in Time project, which was like maybe three months. It was a long time. <laughs> and so, you know, like, and we work a lot on Google, Share, because I'm in Sydney, and this constant kind of um, process of negotiation. and One of us would <coughs> add titles, the other one would cross them out. <laughs> yeah. No. Um, so this is also the case in terms of how we work with a disparate range of materials and objects. It enables us to maintain the differences between elements in a productive tension. <coughs> this was particularly important in the Converging in Time project which we'll go into in more detail in a moment. Uh, as mentioned earlier, Simondon uses the example of brick making in his explanation of individuation as an individuating operation. He argues that form is not a determining principle and matter is not indeterminate. For example, a brick does not result from the meeting of form and matter. Rather, Simondon regards both form and matter as models or examples of physical individuation. He reconceives these pure concepts, form and matter, as formed matter and material form, since form is always material and material is always formed. Individuation uh, is a modulation of three different interacting energies. One, each one acts on the plane of forces, as Suvanyaga explains. The one is a strong energy of the amorphous substance of, in a metastable state, and in the example of the brick, that's the clay that's been prepared from the earth. It's been extracted from a marshy soil, dried out, ground up into powder, had perhaps um, additional elements or minerals added to it, and then immersed back in water and kneaded into an even consistency all of which contribute to its specific qualities of porosity and density, its firing temperature, strength and potential utility. The second energy is a weak energy of the mould, which functions as a continuous modelling 
energy and acts as information that guides and transforms the clay. It is itself made of materials selected for its capacity to be malleable while, re while remaining robust. And the third energy that um, Suvanyaga stresses is the most important is the coupling energy, which is the clay and the mould interact with one another as forces. Simondon wants to account for the meeting of these forces, which he insists is what brings matter and form together as a taking form. The effect of the coupling energy between formed matter and material form was something that we noticed when we were working with plasticine while preparing for an exhibition at the AEAF in 2011. The surface that's produced from pouring melted plasticine into a form made of plastic sheet results from the confrontation of their different temperatures. The heat of the plasticine produces an effect on the milieu that receives it and individuation on a plane of forces and material as a process of modulation. What Simondon understands of individuation emphasises that no substance can exist or acquire determinate properties without relations of another substance and to a specific milieu. To exist is to be connected, a becoming in action. And it's these multitudes of connections that we seek to mobilise through our practice. So now we're going to talk about more concrete things to do with the pro two elements in the project, Converging in Time. So to elaborate how we understand the mobilising of connections or assemblages across multiple objects, sites, histories, bodies, texts, temporalities and social relations, we're going to talk about two main aspects of that project. So firstly, mobilising the specimens. When working with the geosciences collection at Museums Victoria, a number of specimens became really central to the project. So these include this 23 million year old fossil log. It's a Cory fossil log that was found in Gippsland. And it's uh, a fragment of a forest, an Antarctic forest that existed millions of years ago when the seas were in a, in a different place that they are now and land masses were joined between Antarctica, Australia and New Zealand. And these forests were responsible for the brown coal deposits that, we, that the entire state has been powered on. And so that's it in its Museum Victoria archive and that's it exhibited in gallery one at Mama. Uh, a sea lily fossil found in the clay pits of West Brunswick and a secondary uranium crystal called saliite from the Ranger Uranium Mine up in the Northern Territory in Kakadu National, in a section of Kakadu National Parks. There's a lot of contentious politics around that territory. Through our discussions with staff, we became fascinated with how the geological record was entangled with complex social, economic and political forces and the role these forces played in shaping various territories and stories across the entire continent. So we really became interested in the kind of story of the continent through these material artefacts. The diagrams constructed with museum staff attempted to record these manifold processes, histories and narratives multiplying wildly from each specimen. These diagrams then became, we used them as a kind of score which informed our excursions into other archives, texts and locations across Victoria, as well as informing a range of sculptural processes such as this that we elaborated in the studio, which became that. 
Um, okay, so the next uh, point we want to raise here is a mobilisation of a location or site. So an example of one of the specimens mobilising our relationship to an understanding of site is the sea lily or crinoid fossil, which was unearthed in the Hoffman clay pits in West Brunswick in 1903. Uh, crinoids are small marine animals that existed in superabundance super during the Silurian era 400 million years ago. And during this time, the eastern coast of Australia was being formed through submarine landslides. The sediment that collected at the base of the continental shelf uh, buried the crinoid life forms in layers of silt, giving rise to both the clay deposits that were later dug up in Brunswick and subsequently to the fossil itself. Uh, the abundant reserves of clay supported a burgeoning brick industry that developed in response to the rapid growth of Melbourne in the late 1880s, making Brunswick the brick-making capital of Victoria. Uh, alongside this narrative, the first local labour-based political organisation formed in 1897, the Brunswick branch of the United Lab Labour Party, and the future Australian Prime Minister, John Curtin, joined the Brunswick branch as a pot pottery industry worker. So what became interesting for us is discovering these layers of history connected to the clay deposits and the sea lily specimen and how this understanding, how our understanding of this very familiar location was mobilised differently. Our explorations into the many temporal, social and geological layers of this place, sparked by the sea lily fossil, have effectively reproduced a remapping of our knowledge of this area in which existing experiences of place have been mobilised in new assemblages, opening up masked, much vaster temporal and geological durations. Um, the third mobilisation we wanted to talk about is the social, political and historic. And the specimen that we uh, want to discuss in that context is this greenstone um, specimen and the bus trip that came out of our engagement with that to the Willamy Mooring um, Greenstone Quarry in Lansfield. Um, it activates a mobilisation in relationship to place uh, where the greenstone fragment was collected um, by the Geographical Society of Victoria between 1853 and 1868 and its provenance was the Wurundjeri Greenstone Axe Quarry um, called Willimi Mooring or Mount William near Lansfield in regional Victoria. For thousands of years, the Wurundjeri people quarried greenstone or volcanic dorite um, from this um, place uh, to make uh, axe heads. The quarry was the centre of an expansive trading network of the Kulin Nation that extended 700 kilometres into New South Wales and as well across to, New S to South Australia. In 1882 and 1884, Wurundjeri uh, elder Willem Barrack witnessed the final operations of the quarry, describing as aspects of its custodial control to anthropologist Alfred Howitt. In t the 23rd of October in 2012, the land title to the quarry was handed back to the Kulin elders and is now under the control of the Wiradjuri tri uh, Tribal Land Cultural Heritage Council. So when we uh, found the green stone in the museum, 
we were really... It was, in the, uh, it was in the geosciences collection. Yeah, and one of our questions was, why is it in geosciences, why is it not in, in the indigenous collection? Or and even the technological yeah, or collection. Yeah, the technological collection. And uh, we really wanted to address this question and we wanted to work out a way to work with this specimen, acknowledging its significance, but in not appropriating it into the work as a sculptural material in the way we had done with other specimens. Uh, so we, we presented it in, um, as it, we presented it as a museum object in the foyer, or a, uh, at, what's the word, in the foyer with the, um, like a display case, that's what I'm looking for. And we also worked with John Patton, who's the director of Bunjalaka in Museum Victoria, and discussed with him an appropriate way to engage this object. And he, through that conversation, and also through conversations with Matt Pohl, the curator of Maclay Museum, one of his specialties is in stone tool production. In consultation and long-term dialogue with these two, it was, it was decided that it would be an interesting idea to actually learn about the specimen in public through a workshopping process and a bus trip, and that they would be involved in talking to the specimen. So we in no way wanted to talk to the specimen. Uh, we wanted to bring people in who had that expertise or knowledge to do so and participate in that. So that led to a bus trip and it was a kind of a symposium on the bus. A mobile symposium. A mobile symposium. A workshopping event. And so we invited so, because we're interested in, in many different layers of story and time, we invited a range of people. So we invited John uh, Patton, who's the curator at Bunjalaka, to, to speak, Matt Pohl to speak about his understanding of stone tool technology across the southeastern area. Geologists Julie Boyce and James Driscoll, who we've worked together before in the production of an anthropocyte rock, which was in the project at MAMA. Uh, and then a science fiction writer, Professor Andrew Milner, to then bring in this other kind of dimension of futurity, speculative futures, and the Anthropocene. And when we got to, it was a very special day because the quarry is not open to public and the um, land council, the Wurundjeri Land Council, opened it for this specific, specific event and welcomed us to, to country and then discussed the quarry, the history of the quarry, and land claims and their relationship to it. So it was a very special day. And you know, we thought of this, this is as we workshop and have workshopped for years and then with the museum, we saw this as a kind of experiment in workshopping in public. This is Matt Pohl talking on the bus. So this bus trip was a way of responding to and mobilising the multiple knowledges that intersect the greenstone specimen acknowledging its deep connection to country and culture uh, and we, as I just said, expanding the workshopping aspect of our practice to engage others in the histories and the dialogue with the multiple threads of various archives, the tensions they contain and the relationships these produce. And I think it's important to note here that the, we weren't resolving, the bus trip didn't resolve the tensions, the bus, bus trip held the tensions in relation to each other. So there were, you know, there were moments that were a little bit uncomfortable between the geologists' uh, account for the landscape that we were standing on and the, uh, and, uh, the indigenous account as well, you know, sitting side by side. And um, 
Yeah, and it was a really interesting experience for us and mm. hopefully for the other participants. And I guess that's where the idea of disparation helps us understand what's happening in the, on those occasions, that that tension is a productive um, tension that produces a new space, mm, new ways of understanding. Yeah. Mm. So we have a conclusion. Which we should do read in unison. <laughs> you two have. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> do you, you want to no, kick it go. off? In considering... In considering the different forms of mobility activated through the Converging in Time project, we've become acutely aware of the complex layering of time scales and durations evident in materials, museum specimens and place, constituting a temporal dimension to matter that exceeds any easy comprehension. What was initially evident to us while casting the Henbury Iron Meteorite in 2011 was rediscovered in specimens such as the sea lily from the clay pits in Brunswick as, and the cowrie fossil log featured here from the Latrobe Valley Coldfields, which is intimately entwined with that area's politics, territory, geology, and energy. The constellations of time form through a mobilization of these specimens that both spans and brings into relationship the geological and the social dimensions of matter and place, begin to show, and this is a quote from Dipesh Chakrabarti, how we seldom witness the bigger picture. We only access fragments, small shards of a larger, inaccessible whole provisionally assembled? Uh, so the precarity of this assemblage is consistent with Simondon's idea of continuous modulation. This shifting field has informed our approach to the production of work across a wide range of activities, including sculptural processes, engaging with institutions, fieldwork, publications, and our collaboration itself. In assembling new material and social relations, we have sought to maintain the inherent heterogeneity found within processes of individuation, bringing into focus the illusion of stability at any, at all, any scale and the disparate nature of this planet's volatility. And we end with Scott Morrison holding coal in Parliament. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, no, thank you. Um, where do I stand so I don't feed back? Thank you in the back there. Um, it's always annoying when you come up with questions as people are speaking and then they answer them while they're speaking. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so damn you. Um, uh, so therefore I'm, I'm hoping that the audience has questions. But I did come up with two that you didn't answer, so I'll, I'll lead with them. But I'm really hoping that um, all of you will um, have been saving up some questions to ask um, our presenters today. Um, the first one is the last question I came up with. Um, so one of the, uh, I was thinking about the um, binocular vision mm -hmm. and how uh, that is, a, it's the two visions coming together to make a new one as you spoke about and then of course you can have a third eye and a fourth eye. Um, <clears throat> and then I was thinking of the fly. And that made me think of one, of one of the cures for a certain type of vertigo. So apparently um, one of the reasons some people get vertigo is because of an over-dependence on using binocular vision to balance. Mm -hmm. And so this tends to happen to people who work in um, visual areas. Um, and so uh, one of the cures for, one of the possible cures for vertigo is 
you practice brushing your teeth with your eyes closed standing on one leg and thereby slowly train yourself to rely more upon your inner ear. Mm -hmm. And you have to actually unlearn, um, you have to teach your body not to rely on your visual sense. Because the reason visual um, the reliance on binocular vision gives you vertigo is that when you're standing close to something, you can perceive um, spatial distance very easily with binocular vision. But when things are very far away, as in when you're standing on a cliff edge, if you're relying entirely on binocular vision to judge space, suddenly you can't judge space anymore and you look, oh shit, I'm gonna fall off or over. So my question arising from that is, <laughs> yes, I promise you there is a question in there. Um, in, in that act of retraining one's body to rely on uh, the inner ear to balance, it's actually an unlearning of a reliance on a certain sense. And so my question is, in order to, um, in order to understand uh, the, the multiple points of view, geology, and also um, the cultural um, point of view that a Brock has at the same time, what are the things that you as a collective or individually, now let's go with collective, what are the, the things that as you as a collective have had to unlearn in order to be able to hold all those things in your work at the same time? What have you had to unlearn? Um, well, you see, it, to hold them together, we have to do something like the Converging in Time exhibition. That really was the culmination of six years of engaging with all of this stuff and going into the, the histories and the trying to understand the geology. You know, we had crash course in so many fields of knowledge that we didn't know, so it was really like a lot of learning. And um, then we tried to bring them together in the exhibition in a way where they were kind of held together but not uh, assembled into um, a particular understanding because we, we don't have that. Like that's where I think art can actually grapple with some of these um, bigger multiple issues in a way that you can't do it in text or in any other way. You can experience the differences and you can move between them and you can get a sense of it, but there's never going to be a sense that you can make of it. Or a synthesis. Yeah. Um. We're very, working very much away from synthesis at all times. But yeah. yeah, and maybe to be more direct in answering your question there, there's nothing like a, a having to come to a group decision to force you to unlearn <laughs> some preconception that you may have entered into with, yeah, into that decision. So, you know, I mean, this is the whole process yeah. of working together is a continual process of individually unlearning so that the group can, uh, you know, bring something together. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I'm very interested in the idea when you started talking about tension. Um, I was going to ask a question, but you answered that, which is that tension is often described as this thing that hold thing, holds things together, like surface tension. Mm. Yeah. Whereas tension like a resonance. Yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> that was one of the questions that you answered. And the other question that you answered was, a couple of weeks ago, Nusha Kenny in the lecture series spoke about um, her relationship to a cursing stone, which she'd return, and one of the audience, she told a long story about it, one of the audience members said, have you ever thought of telling the story from the point of view of the stone? It's like, well, yeah, so you guys have done that. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> the second question is, and this plays probably more to the, um, to what this lecture series is supposedly about, which is, um, I noticed that you are um, presenting from a script, 
and um, that's something obviously that you've uh, prepared and discussed together and had discussion about who's going to say what and when and when you might break from that and have a little bit of a chat no, and then go back to the screen. It. We winged it. Just winged that. it. Okay, so the question is, um, the, the process of preparing to present together and the either carefully prepared or winged script, whichever it is. So, so does that process inform the content of what's being discussed in any way? Well, we have a really, the way we work is basically when we have something coming up, we'll have a weekly session on Google Hangout and we have a Google Drive and we decide, okay, we're going to put material in there and we say, let's read it for next week and we never do. Yeah, we <laughs> and, then, and then we spend the next meeting discussing things that we should have already resolved. And it's, it's quite, um, it depends on the stress levels and the energy levels and the approaching deadline. So it does inform, like, this has actually turned out quite differently to, I think, what we'd planned a month ago. Oh, I mean, it turns out it, it's a relationship of time and... I'm not sure we had a plan. <laughs> I know. I'm wondering what plan she <laughs> we, we were reading a chapter and There's we were no coming to that. terms with the idea of desperation because it made it so totally much sense. totally emerges from the process, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it emerges yeah. from that process. I mean, uh, we might individually come to it with an idea of what we're going to talk about, but that's not what happens. <laughs> but we, I mean, yeah, we, we, when we have something, we commit to it and we work regularly on it and something always emerges. So then the um, so that's kind of, that's very interesting. So what you just described about the geologist and the um, the cultural history expert uh, and the indigenous person all in the same space together, having like different views. But that's what you're doing with each other all mm. the time. All yeah, the time. Okay, great. Yeah. Mm. Right, thanks. Mm. Are there any questions from the audience? I know there are. I'm just going to stand here. <laughs> I'm quite interested in how you engaged with, firstly, you talked about your engagement with time, especially with geological time, but did you engage, I'm interested in whether you engaged or reflected with indigenous, especially Kulin Nation around the areas of the mine with their concepts of time and whether you reflected that in your artwork? We engaged it, well, we engaged it on site with the, elder who welcomed us and we you know we're not in a position to absorb and make use of it within our own work but having said that it does inform how we think in terms of thinking about longer durations and responsibilities to place um, but we're working with a range of different registers, so we're careful not to appropriate or make or, or speak on behalf of knowledges that we aren't equipped to speak on behalf of. We're, you know, we're artists who are working in a... It's coming out of a history of our production. I don't know if... Does that answer your question? And I think we invited Matt to contribute to the publication for that reason. Yes. To, for him to bring his knowledge and his relationship to... Um, particularly the the tools and the and the geological and the, the sort cosmic of, you know the temporal yep. dimensions of an indigenous culture yeah so yeah Matt Pohl is a colleague that I've worked with before on a project in Sydney and the the collaborative dialogue was very genuine and we've and I when we had this project 
we were like, why don't we ask Matt if he's interested in having a discussion with us about this aspect of the project. So yeah, it's about inviting a contemporary, real-term dialogue that we're actually having rather than going out and seeking Indigenous knowledge to fit our project. So it was already there as a collaborative, um, discursive relationship and he was really keen to be involved in that. So his essay in the publication is really quite key to opening that aspect of time out, actually. Yeah. Uh, are there any others? I know there, I know there are, there it is. <laughs> Charlotte's first spin. There's <laughs> <laughs> no. a bit of a self-interest in this question. Um, <laughs> In terms of, I suppose, how far you took the methodology and the relationship with the museum and that body of research, you know, how far you took it in the exhibition at MAMA, do you see that, that that's the end of that period of particular research or is it, or are you imagining a kind no, of further? No, we imagine further? more. We have plans for more, don't we? Yeah. We're so particularly interested in the bus trip. The bus trip, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, we, even before this exhibition sort of came about, we were interested in this, um, uh, what we were terming um, going into the field, so uh, taking the specimens or taking the knowledge of the specimens back to their points of collection uh, or back to um, their cultural or, uh, you know, social significance. And uh, we've still got plans for that, some kind of OSW uh, roaming bus tour, um, but a uh, retirement van. Um, but uh, there was also work that didn't make it into the exhibition, so work that we were working on up until the last minute but didn't, didn't materialise in, in the exhibition. So, you know, it's sort of a continuous process for us. Yeah. And it came out like we were making work two years prior, like doing some... We took the log to the Morwell region and exhibited that in a larger project, a group project, and it didn't quite work for us, so we had the opportunity to rework it and so we could build on that. So, yeah, I, I guess the, pr the practice itself is a kind of ongoing, continuous progression anyway, and so we'll always f pull things out of that and develop new lines of exploration. Mm. Yeah. We're and going to see Dermot tomorrow. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At the museum. <laughs> Scott, you've painted a picture in my mind of a giant campaign bus, like the Brexit bus, but it's oh, always W on the side. <laughs> This is just an open question. Yeah. Um, people are everywhere in your project, but also nowhere. Mm -hmm. um, like at Mama, I just felt like <laughs> people were emptied out, but also, I guess, in the way that you present your project, it is very peopled. And I just wanted you to kind of... I mean, how do you grapple with that in the, exhibi in the exhibition-making process, I guess? Mm. I guess it's, you know, there's the inhuman... On the spectrum, the inhuman is turned up high in that project, uh, and that comes out of our interest in... Trying to escape an anthropo anthropomorphic kind of view, worldview. So, yeah, I mean, you're bound to... Uh, the human as a kind of individual, you know, observing the world, walking on the earth, is, is going to recede a little bit, well, hopefully. Uh, but it's a consequence, really, rather than an intent, I think. Mm. 
But I mean, we, you know, we have done, Catherine Yusof, one of the people informing us and who's in the publication as well, her, a lot of her writing talks about the inhuman that inheres in the human, that, that there, is, there, are mass, uh, there are inhuman elements that exist in our bones, in our being, and so that connects to our, like they're intertwined. So yeah, that's, I would say that's why we had that. And I guess we and always the sculptural as well. Yeah, we really wanted the exhibition to emphasise the sculptural and all that other mm, material right. to be in the publication. So the project is the two together and the bus trip. So maybe they're kind of separated out a little bit in that project. Mm. Yeah, no, having the sculptural, we, we really decided that we wanted the sculptural presence to be paramount, to take out the kind of historical time in a didactic sense in the exhibition and then locate all of that heavily in the publication. Yep, so it's like saturated, but removed. <laughs> yeah. Does that answer your question, Spirit? Probably not. <laughs> Just something I wanted to... Yeah, no, it's an important question. I've got a, a follow-up question from that. So if, if, the, if science is a belief system, so... Apparently, the um, the world revolves around the sun. I think that it's probably a safe bet that most people in this room accept that. I accept that, but I I couldn't ex I couldn't explain that to you from first principles, and so I've subscribed to a belief system that has long long time ago pr proven that, and I've so happily subscribed to it that it, I don't I probably won't spend any time in my life trying to figure that out. Or explain it to anyone <clears throat> from first principles. So um, I also the concept of geology and the time and understanding of time that relates to it also comes from a belief system that I've subscribed to. But I can't prove anything from first principles about how geology works. So isn't then geology just a human concept? Uh, it's a geology as a practice is the reading of the material world to understand the forces that formed it. So, I mean, I don't, you could skip back to the slide of us squashing um, the, clay. the clay, but this is a direct, this is a uh, reenactment basically of uh, Scottish, early Scottish geologists, geologists trying to understand how the mountain ranges around them were being formed or had been formed. So, um, they used to do these kind of experiments. We came across this wonderful book that had these diagrams. All different machines. Which, which was like, yeah. a, you know, a, a program now, for studio activity. <laughs> it's not a, it's obviously geology is a social construct. Mm. You know, it's a social, it's a, you know, it's tied up with all sorts of um, politics. But, uh, but it's also an observation of, of material formation. So, yeah. And maybe that's where someone like Simondon is really interesting because he, crosses over that, like his work is across the formation of technical objects and individuals and his theory tried to account for both of those things. Um, and if, you know, you have someone like him putting forward this different way of understanding how form and matter work and this notion of continual modulation and the idea of individuation as opposed to the individual. I'm sure if you were a geologist with that kind of knowledge and you went and looked at the same record, you're going to make up a different understanding. And the one thing we became really 
aware of, you know, sitting around the coffee room um, in the museum, is that all of this stuff is very volatile in its fields. The understanding mm. of the, how the volcanoes in Victoria worked and are working, likely to erupt, is a, a, a very current, um, you know, investigation. Julie, who was on the bus trip, has just finished doing her PhD in that field and putting forward a new understanding of what's happened and therefore predicting what might happen. So, you know, we might have the kind of idea that, you know, the, the simplistic idea of how things work from a, um, you know, Kellogg's cornflakes box understanding of science, but we're, when... We're, we're talking us personally. Yeah, yeah us personally. personally. <laughs> um, but when, you know, you spend time with the people who are really engaged in that world, it's much, you know, it's so much more nuanced and, you know, actively contested and the knowledge is constantly being formed as they're informed by different understandings. different geologists and their views on things mm -hmm. that it was continually being tested yeah out and that I mean I think that was part of the exciting thing that it feels like it's continually being formed and even ideas of time were so different depending mm. on people's viewpoints I mean I think that's there's a lot of unknowns about the real time of things and when mm. they happened or could happen mm. um, which tied nicely with the show Um, I was uh, on that bus trip actually and it, I found it a very contested space in exactly those conversations. So following on from just the recent questions, um, the, in the exhibition, um, <coughs> the inhuman as you say, and the last slide that you had holding the coal, I mean there is a shock of those two spaces and I was just very curious um, in the sense of, you know, the space almost for me was a, in a way a, a sense of like having a collider which has a streak of a flash point somewhere in the conversations or somewhere in the exercise. But I was wondering, do you feel that this um, project has a political content in where you take it or is it really more uh, art form in terms of form, formless and observation? Both. Both. Mm -hmm. Definitely both. Um, and you know, just going back to this idea of the, the project as a whole is the exhibition with the book and so the book definitely brings that political content to the foreground in terms of the notes and the narratives and the constant engagement with territory and contested territory and stolen territory as well. Yeah. I guess what we were hoping was that the experience of going through the spaces and then you know looking at the collated material in the book would um, bring an awareness of the complexity mm. and, and again this kind of you know, the tension of all of these possible ways of understanding and certainly not a position. Like, it's not a, a politics that says this is what you should think, this is good and that is bad. We really wanted to somehow bring to the similar level all of the contested, you know, Realities, difficulties. Entities. We don't have a solution, you know, but um, we hoped by immersing people in that experience that it would at least, you know, bring that to the fore for conversation and debate. Yeah, 
Um, just to um, close that question, um, so where would, where, would it might, where might it be taken next as a way of having, say, a forum that can actually be political? I mean, if you're going to show something like a Scott Morrison, it's a really interesting, um, where does it go to be able to create more spark? I'm just curious. Yeah. Yeah. Where does it go? That's the next question for <laughs> us. <laughs> I mean, like all artists, it depends on where the opportunities are. I mean, this was an opportunity for us to bring together these thoughts. You know, we tend to mm. respond to the circumstances that allow us to formulate something, whether it's a paper or a exhibition or, yeah. Really quickly, um, I was on the bus trip as well, oh, actually. Great. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was wondering, um, partially, what led you to call it a workshop rather than something else? Is it something about trying to get away from it being seen as an artwork? Or I, I sort of wasn't sure about that. I guess talking about politics and the potential for discussion within that, and yeah, I'm. I was sort of left wondering about the workshop element within it and whether it was a workshop, your workshop, rather than for me, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, maybe that's a, that could be a question for yourself, really, whether it was a workshop or not. Um, for, yeah, for us, it was, one, it was one of our workshops, yeah. Uh, it was, but it was a workshop that invited other people into it, most, but probably predominantly the speakers who had already, already had ongoing conversations with. So it was a chance to have to bring these conversations together in one location. Now, whether it was an, a workshop for the other participants, the other people on the bus, I'm not sure. Mm. Um, some of you, there's probably a whole range of responses to that, yeah. Mm. Uh, but yes, it was definitely a workshop for us, yeah. And the open in Open Spatial Workshop was from an initial idea that we would do that kind of thing. We would come together in a space and test out ideas and that if other people came along, that was good. Mm. That was part of it. Mm. Um, <clears throat> my last question, <laughs> um, reflecting back onto the thing that I said at the beginning where I blamed OSW yeah, for this lecture series. About, yeah. What's that about? <laughs> it's actually a bit inaccurate. It's actually Club's project, ah. <clears throat> Open Spatial Workshop. And <clears throat> um, so I'm obviously involved in the teaching of um, people about how to design spaces. And one of the issues that comes up which really interests me is how do you uh, engage in a discussion via observational technique when the thing that is being discussed is proposed not actual, which is always the case oh, when studying architecture, sure, yeah. well, 99% mm. of the time. Mm. <clears throat> um, and mm. there are two issues with that. One is, are the things not there yet? Um, but also, you're not, you're not only teaching the design of space, but you're also teaching the skills of representation at the same time. So it, you may often find yourself in, this, in the um, <clears throat> situation whereby not only are you talking about something that's proposed, you have to actually imagine what has been proposed because the skills are not there yet to represent it properly. So how does, um, does that come up in your work and or your teaching, this um, conflict between observation and uh, as a technique and the issue of representation of things that are yet to exist? 
Well, the models maybe uh, yeah. something to talk about. We have a, a few different ways of working that enable us to um, approximate what we're going to do and as materially and spatially as we can. In this project we had quite a, what was the scale, 1 to 20 scale model of the gallery that we worked with. We also take things into the gallery as often as we can <laughs> to try them out. On a previous um, occasion, we mapped out the size of the gallery we were going to be working in um, in, the, in the workshop we were in to get a sense of the scale of it. So, you know, like with an art practice, there's all those kind of techniques of trying to approximate as closely as you can the situation that you're going to be in. We also outsource that problem. We call on the skills. We don't outsource. We 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 call on the skills of other people to join the conversation of how do you make how do you, how do you make this thing do this thing, mm. or how do you what if how would you bring those two things together? Well, yeah, that separation is very interesting then, because um, what the trap of that is that um, observation of something that you're imagining is it's technically possible to do, but it's also fraught with being observ observing from within the domain in which your mind is set. But like there was great risks in the project with laying that floor, that papercrete floor. We'd done a series of tests in July and we didn't quite do what we tested with the same kind of material. And then halfway through it, you know, it was just, you know, drying to be like this green colour and we were like, ah, oh, it's destroyed, our project's ruined, <laughs> but then it came good. But, you know, like, you know, so working on that scale, we you have to take risks. We can, you can only test and visualise so far, but then the materiality has a kind of force of its own as well that pushes back. Yeah. Okay, so can I say then that the, the objects themselves are a collaborative partner? That's kind of what you've been saying all along. They anyway, co-produce, yeah. co-productive, yeah. Um, <coughs> uh, yeah, go ahead. I was, just, I was just about to say, we're not being kicked out, so please, more questions. <laughs> That just sort of uh, out of my own curiosity, and I, I do understand that your art is the exhibition and as, as well as the book, but would you consider it or would you be open to, um, I guess, be open to other fields like interior designers, for example, collaborating with them to, uh, I guess, help you put together the exhibition? Well, um, uh, so we, we did a public work uh, out at Monash, um, in the geoscience, in the, um, what's the garden called? Uh, what's it called? Earth. The Geological Earth Sciences Garden. Yeah, uh, and, and we entered that as, uh, the way we entered that was hoping that we would collaborate with the, uh, the landscape architects who were forming that garden. So that's how we wanted. So yeah, we, we are open to that sort of collaborative uh, thing. In fact, we, you know, our conversations with the scientists, when we went to the museum, we didn't really know what we were doing there. We were, yeah. we were, we were collaborating with those people there to, yeah. to do something. But I guess it's sort of like a fine line defining how much input they get into the project as well as your yeah. curational yeah. exhibition in a way. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the, the work, we drew, this exhibition drew from that experience, uh, but, you know, they, they weren't there. Um, well, the museum was there telling us how to, how to handle and uh, and what we could do with their specimens in that exhibition. Yeah, so, quite rigorous. And, and we workshopped script. different display techniques for their different mm. specimens and that sort of stuff. So that was a collaborative sort of design exercise, I guess. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we, uh, we have tried to enter into 
other kind of collaborative relationships too. Yeah. Uh, you talked about uh, in your speak about uh, you emphasized about the relationship between form and materiality, and that's um, and most of the things is going back to Aristotle. When in terms of the theory and philosophy, they talk about since the Aristotle talk about the relationship between these two aspects until the current days where the, it's become a scientific. And in your research, did you look at the aspect or the perception of the indigenous, how they look at this relationship? Uh, no, we haven't looked at that. Um, uh, it's not, uh, it's, it, is, it is something of interest to us, but no, it's not, it, I don't think you could, we could claim that that's in the show, no. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we have uh, individually, participated in, in various discussions along those lines, uh, but, um, but it, does, it didn't enter into the, our conversations around the show. And, you know, I guess it's a little bit like the, um, the answer to an, an earlier question. We're always um, cautious about claiming knowledge that isn't our knowledge. We'd rather have other people speak to that. Mm. But, you know, on the Aristotle thing, I mean, we avoided using the term holomorphism, but that's explicitly what Simon Don is arguing against when holomorphism comes from, you know, it's developed out of Aristotle. I'm going to call that as no more questions, but please interrupt me if there are others. Um, <coughs> A whole lot of people worked bringing um, this event together, uh, including all three of you, so thank you very much. Um, I won't list all the people that need to be thanked because they're all mentioned on the uh, events information, but I will thank um, ACCA for um, co-hosting, co-sponsoring uh, this um, particular Writing and Concepts workshop. And if you haven't already seen it, please go and see the Better Together show, which is currently on, although closed right now. <coughs> I would like to um, invite um, Jackie Shelton to give closing remarks uh, from AC. Jackie. Thanks, Jan. Um, big thank you to Terry, Scott and Bianca for coming out to give this talk as part of Writing and Concepts. Um, also in association with Greater Together, it was very interesting to hear this sort of unlearning that occurs when working in collaboration, not just with each other, but with archives, materials, sites, histories and knowledges and the friction that occurs which you know resonates on a different frequency and is held together quietly and um, we really appreciate it so thank you Jan thank you Bianca Scott Terry thank you yeah Thanks. cheers <laughs>